and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarians Corner for Pants Labyrinth. Hello and welcome to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my friend and cohort, my um, my fawn for this particular episode, <laughs> Julio Oliveira. Julio, what was the Spanish title of the film? Uh, the Fawn's Labyrinth. I don't know why they changed it to Pan, but... Yeah, literally, it was the Fawn's Labyrinth. La- Labyrinthino del Fauno. Oh, you wanted me to do the, the, the Spanish thing. Yeah. El Labyrinto del Fauno. Okay, there we go. You were you were somewhat close. I think other people would have done worse. <laughs> uh, 2006's Pan's Labyrinth, our first Guillermo del Toro film here on The Contrarians. Um, do we have any returning favorites i don't think so i think this is all new folk for us uh yeah i mean no yes we do kind of uh doug jones who plays the fawn and the the pale man uh well he was in hocus pocus which we discussed in a patron episode yes so kind of a little bit yeah he's got quite the interesting filmography he was also in uh three kings which we've done on here Duck Jones was in Three Kings. It looks like he had just kind of a uh, an extra role, but it was enough for him to get a credit, and it's listed in his filmography. <laughs> I don't remember any weird monsters or creatures in Three Kings. So, Julio, it's two thousand six. You seeing this in the theater? Do you, did you get swept up in all the hype for this? Oh yeah, twice. <laughs> I saw it in uh, in theaters here in the states. Then I went uh, to Peru to visit my family. Watched it there again. It didn't have subtitles there, though, I take it. it. I was about to say, one of those screenings didn't have subtitles. Guess which one. Uh, yeah, I had thought I had seen this, but I quickly figured out soon into it I hadn't. Um, I do remember when, when it came out when I was in college, when my one of my friends got it. He showed me the beer bottle scene. He was like, you have to see this. He like flattens this dude's face with a beer bottle. And then he like just showed that to me. And he was like, all right, you can go. So for like a few years, I thought this was some like grotesquely... Uh, you know, gore-ridden film. <laughs> Eli Roth's Labyrinth. Yeah, pretty much. Or fucking Peter Jackson's Swipe It, <laughs> Modern Violence. <laughs> May 27th, 2006, it premiered the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, again, directed by and written by Guillermo del Toro. I did see uh, Alfonso Caron got a producer credit on there. Um, so, <laughs> worlds colliding, no doubt. Um <laughs> But a movie that definitely 
swept up a lot of people. I mean, to this day, it's a very beloved film, but it ended up uh, just in real time getting uh, one, two, three, four, five, six Oscar nominations, and it took three of those home, art direction, cinematography, and makeup, um, all of which, you know, make perfect sense. But we are here today to discuss it in the contrarian's fashion. And if this is your first time listening, tuning into the contrarians, we thank you very much for giving us the time. Uh, for our returning listeners, you all know we got love for you. Give us just a moment here while we explain what it is we do to our new ears. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as is our battle cry. We find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as certified fresh. Uh, usually shoot about 85% and above. And what we'll do with that is take it to task, talk about maybe some of the overrated aspects of it, uh, maybe some poor direction, poor acting, things that critics in general just swept under the rug. Uh, and then conversely, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, one of those nasty green splotches known as Rotten, uh, usually about 30% and below. And as you guess, we will find what is to be celebrated in those films. Good acting, bold narrative choices, uh, interesting cinematography, what have you. Sometimes we have to get creative with some of these awful movies that we watch, but we will <laughs> find a way to make it sound positive, all, all in an effort to prove that, number one, art is subjective. Number two, you can be as over the moon or as cynical about anything as you want to be. And number three, uh, the Rotten Tomatoes system doesn't always tell the whole story. Uh, Julio, that comprises the first half of our podcast, what we refer to as Contrarian's Corner. If our listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie we're discussing, they just have to hang around to the second half. That's correct, Alex. The second half of the show, aptly titled Real Talk, that's where we tell you how we really feel about the movie. And this episode marks the beginning of a new era. We're uh, changing up the format of the show a little bit, in case you didn't... Uh, listen to the can hardly wait episode episode 150 the one preceding this this episode you might be wondering why is it that this recording seems a little shorter and that's because there's two pants labyrinth uh episodes from us on your feed right now i promise they're there check it out one is the one you're listening to which is contrarian's corner real talk is its own separate episode why are we doing this well we explained it in detail last episode and like i said then this episode is the last time we're going to explain it. <laughs> we just want to try something. It's a little experiment. We got to keep it spicy in the bedroom. <laughs> yes, basically that's it. <laughs> that's a pretty good analogy. <laughs> this is us trying a flavored condom and see if uh, <laughs> if that catches some new contrarian fans. And we are trusting that uh, it's not going to repel any current contrarian fans. I think that if you already listen to the show. This doesn't really change anything. <laughs> you yeah. just you can listen to two episodes back to back, and there's no change uh, whatsoever. Yeah, but if you've never listened to the show, because the the sight of our two hour episodes seemed too daunting, maybe seeing two episodes one hour each, more or less, uh, would be a little less intimidating. And you know, you'll finally take that jump into Contrarian's bliss. So, this is Contrarian's corner. Real talk is right there in your podcatcher. <laughs> and and if you've made your playlist already, it's this is just going to slide right into that. But uh, Real Talk is where we're going to find out uh, how Alex feels about uh, Pan's Labyrinth. He had never seen it before. So I have no idea uh, what's what's in store when it comes to Alex's side. And since we've never really talked about it, uh, 
I don't think he knows much uh, about my side of it either. Uh, what he knows, and now most of our Twitter followers do, is that my wife is crazy about this movie because she actually tweeted her appreciation to uh, to patron Chaz Fisher for demanding that we cover this movie because uh, it's it's one of her favorites. So there's that. <laughs> yes, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, quite the undertaking. We've, I, you know, Blue is Warm as Color was on our patron feed. What foreign, other foreign movies have we done? By foreign, I mean, for me, subtitled films. That subtitled movies. The, the main feed. Oh, man. Uh... Fucking Dead Alive needed them. Y'all crazy New Zealanders <laughs> and your slang. I can't keep up. <laughs> uh, well, for that matter, The Guard, just very recently. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, I don't. The main reason I ask is just my notes are extremely minimal because it was one first time viewing and two, you know, it's a completely different aspect when you need to pay attention and read along with the dialogue. One of the few episodes where you have a leg up on me on that, Julio, because this is your native tongue. Um, I texted you about this, but I need to go ahead and ask just to make sure I don't appear stupid. This is this movie is in Spanish because it's Guillermo del Toro's native language. There's not some greater meaning to the idea of like this world war ii-esque film being in spanish am i correct in that well i mean it's i don't know <laughs> we have to ask del toro but the okay in your uh, opinion my opinion is that i think he saw the chance of doing something special uh, I don't know. I mean, I imagine he he thought of this movie as set in Spain. I mean, th- what little I know of the behind the scenes is that he had been working on this movie for a while, you know, in his head. And so I imagine that when he was thinking about it, he always knew that it was set in the, you know, the era of the Spanish Civil War. And so that means that it's set in Spain. Why? You know, he's Mexican. So I don't know. I mean, he I guess he has, you know, an affinity for that period of time, or who knows what the connection is between him and the Spanish Civil War. But once you decide that your story is going to be set there, then if you're a Hispanic filmmaker, then it makes sense that you would just make the movie in Spanish. And uh, I think I told you in that text, like I read somewhere that they actually had offered him a bigger budget if he made it in English, and he refused because nice. his vision was that it was going to be in in Spanish. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, clearly there was. It was very important to him to, for it to be in in Spanish. But the reason, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just that by now he had made what Mimic and uh, the first Hellboy. Is that right? Uh, yeah, first Hellboy, I believe, was a four. Yeah, maybe he just needed a, a little bit of detox from <laughs> the, the American studio system. I was like, can I just do something in Spanish because I'm tired of this shit. Uh, yeah, because it it takes place in 1944, which of course World War II was happening then, and you know there's no swastikas or anything like that, but there's definitely the appearance of the the bad guys, and it's the Capitan. It, it definitely seems to be some sort of Nazi leader. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, a fascist maybe. We never really get into the the details of the politics here, but it's it's pretty clear who's the bad guy and who's the good guys. <laughs> yes. The guy smacking the child is not the good guy. <laughs> so it is 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. So that definitely means this first portion here, we're going to be cutting it down to size. As I mentioned, an awards darling uh, upon its release. Uh, still to this day, a pretty celebrated film. It's got a criterion, the, the cream of the crop, the highest accolade any film can achieve. Uh, Julio... 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. What uh, what were the critics saying about this? 
What are they still saying to this day? <laughs> to this day, there are like over 200 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. 95% of them are fresh. Uh, so I grabbed some fresh quotes from the site, uh, starting with Sarah Musnicki from Nightmarish Conjurings. She says, Pan's Labyrinth harks back to a time when fairy tales were dark and filled with life lessons prior to the tales being taken up by Disney's more family-friendly hands. She's making it sound like it's a bad thing that Disney decided to lighten up this type of stories. Uh, and I don't know that that's the case. I think that there was there was a reason why fairy tales were scary once upon a time. and mm-hmm. uh, But then, you know, times change. I, this is my kind of like delving into Contreras Corner a little bit already, Alex. But uh, I think that once upon a time, you needed to tell scary stories to kids to prepare them for the world. Uh, you know, there was no way of, for them to know how horrible the world would be unless you kind of told them fairy tales that were really dark and messed up. Uh, that's not the case now. Now, it's just anybody, you, you just step out of your house. Not, not even that, you turn on your computer and you can tell how fucked up the world is. So now the purpose of fairy tales is the opposite. It's to give you hope. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as messed up as everything is, there's still you can still get a happy ending. There's still uh, some light at the end of the darkness. So we don't need the type of fairy tale that Del Toro created. And this it, that's that time is long gone. We need something hopeful. We need we need the little girl not to die at the end. <laughs> so um yeah, I I, I disagree with uh yeah, I was gonna call her our colleague Sarah Mustick. <laughs> In a sense. In a sense. Nightmarish conjuring. Someone going is anybody paying her for that? I don't know. Um next an old friend, Willie Waffle, from WaffleMovies.com, <laughs> says, A magical, frightening, and heartbreaking movie for adults who want to take the journey and read the subtitles. Yes, that's it, technically correct. <laughs> that is correct. It's been, what, 15 years since it came out? Uh, where is my Pan's Labyrinth remake in English? I mean, Parasite got announced less than a year after winning the Oscar. They've already announced an English remake of that? Yeah, I, actually, I think it's gonna be a TV show. Maybe both. You gotta, you gotta get that content while it's hot. What? Uh, I always forget the name of that fucking U.S. remake of uh, The Untouchables. <laughs> we did it on the show. I know, but I can't. I, I always want to call the, it the Blind Side, but that, that's it. Yeah, terrible. When you look at the multiverse and all the absolutely terrible remakes that could have been made of The Untouchables. It, we got lucky. <laughs> Next, Rob Vaugh from Flipside Movie Emporium says, For adults who remember those long-ago nights under the covers, its temptations prove almost too much to resist. Did he watch the porno version of uh, Pan's Labyrinth? Yeah, curious what he's implying here. Maybe it's just a Del Toro fetish. Uh, and finally, Jim Lane from Sacramento News and Review says, as repellently fascinating as watching a snake devour a rabbit. Mm, I'm not sure he's <laughs> making the point he thought he was. <laughs> Whose rabbit? Because that if it's your rabbit, <laughs> this is a very different experience. If it's your snake, I guess you're used to that. That's why you got the snake. Um, those are our quotes. Alex, before we jump into Contrarian's Corner, I am really curious. How did you watch this one? Because I own it. I have the Criterion, the aforementioned Criterion. My wife brought it 
into our household as part of our of her uh, dowry. Is it her dowry? I guess it could be. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I knew that yeah. dealt specifically with cash, but it can also include jewelry or electronic appliances. So yeah, Blu-rays, DVDs definitely fall in that category. There you go. Part of my wife's dowry was the Criterion Blu-ray of Pan's Labyrinth, which was put to good use for this episode of The Contrarians. How about you? Uh, yeah, I, this isn't anywhere online, so I just rented it on um, YouTube. HD. Good stream. Yeah, may consider... Uh, adding this to the collection uh, upon the next uh, criterion sale but we'll see <laughs> we'll see we'll see how this conversation pans out yeah you get it pans out boo <laughs> so pans labyrinth the uh, so the original spanish title we discussed el labrotino del fano uh, refers to the fauns of Roman mythology, while uh, the English, German, and French titles refer specifically to the fawn-like Greek deity Pan. So it they both have to do with fucking Doug Jones and his creepy ass. <laughs> uh, it's so weird, though, because, you know, Pan, well, not Pan, pan but Pan, pan yeah. in, in Spanish is bread. Yes. Pan in English doesn't mean anything, but I guess it's it's a... Uh, a proper name, like a, a, a the name of a creature that's never named in the movie. So, right from the start, <laughs> we have a problem here in this title. Yeah, Del Toro clarified that he that the fawn is not pawn. So the the translations <laughs> of it do with them what you will. The fawn is not made of bread, but also no. the fawn is not the mythical creature Pan. No, 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 no. It would be interesting if they were made of pawn. Like it was just a bread creature <laughs> roaming around. There's lots of bread in the movie. Uh, yeah, so Pan's Labyrinth, it blends like historical fiction with straight out like sci-fi and fantasy. What's it classified as? Uh, Spanish-Mexican dark fantasy film. So, Set in Spain. Yes. It's best to establish the base we're on here and that would be by referencing our good friend wikipedia uh in the plot summation in a fairy tale prince moana whose father is the king of the underworld visits the human world where the sunlight blinds her and erases her memory she becomes mortal and eventually dies the king believes that eventually her spirit will return to the underworld so he builds labyrinths which act as portals around the world in preparation for her return in 1944, Francois Spain, 10-year-old Ophelia travels with her pregnant but sickly mother Carmen to meet Captain Vidal, her new stepfather, who she doesn't want to call him dad, but ever uh, her mom keeps insisting. It's just a word. Call him your father. Vidal, the son of a famed commander who died in Morocco, believes strongly in phalangism, phalanism, and has been assigned to hunt down Republican rebels. A large stick insect, which Ophelia believes to be a fairy, leads Ophelia into an ancient stone labyrinth, but she is stopped by Vidal's housekeeper, Mercedes, who is secretly supporting her brother, Pedro, and other rebels. That night, the insect appears in Ophelia's room, where it transforms into a fairy and leads her into the labyrinth. There, she meets a fawn, not Pan, who believes <laughs> she is the reincarnation of Princess Moana. He gives her a book and tells her she will find in it three tasks to complete in order to acquire immortality and return to her kingdom. 
I'd like to start by saying that I've watched the real Princess Moana in a <laughs> Disney movie, and it was a lot more fun, a lot more musical than this one. Uh, overall, a much better time. So we established the angsty kid who's upset that, you know, her mom's marrying a new guy. It's all these really standard cliche tropes that are just masked by artsy bullshit. Uh, <laughs> yes. And also, like, the wise beyond her years, not groundskeeper, but, you know, maid at the house there, the evil stepfather. Uh, and, you know, it becomes like this question of, is this really happening or is this all just in her head for her to escape the horrors of her real life? When she, when they get to the, you know, compound or whatever you want to call it where they're staying, and she finds the the big stone, the the formation of stones, like it's like a maze. Uh-huh. Mercedes walks up to her and goes, "It's a labyrinth." She like nudged the audience and said, "It's the chainsaw." <laughs> and she was probably holding a piece of bread, just yes. for those who wanted to read extra into the title. Uh, the main thing that has changed this time as I was watching it from previous times and I blame you know reality now (laughs) modern times is that I had zero sympathy for the rebellion you know Vidal is there and Vidal is a son of a bitch I mean don't get me wrong yeah Uh, but he's there to do a job and his job is to enforce that the people that basically the people that lost the election need to accept the results it, he he says it several times. I think even the the title, like you know, the the opening titles say it also that you know there's basically rebels there that refuse to acknowledge that you know Vidal and the people behind Vidal won. <laughs> it is said several times we won, and these people just refuse to accept it. And so that had such strong echoes with people these days that you know we're like two years in almost, and their people are still like refusing to acknowledge election results it was just instantly made me dislike mercedes and that whole thing because i'm like guys it's even brought up at some point in the movie it was like they could just leave <laughs> but instead they just want to stay and keep committing acts of terrorism around this area so when the good guys have already rubbed me the wrong way 10 minutes into the movie this is not it's not auspicious and you know to make the matters worse with the capitan uh vidal is he just keeps saying they're going to have a son and basically just pressuring this woman who already appears to be on the brink of some sort of serious health issue of like, uh, you will bear me a son or else. And, you know, moving ahead a little bit in the movie, but that's taken very literally on his end. (laughs) Or else. Did you find yourself like attached to any character? Were you rooting for anyone in this movie? I like the doctor just because he's so blunt and matter of fact, and he kind of goes out like a John Wayne badass in the end. But, you know, the Vidal is just like comically evil. And then everyone else just seems uh, they're not likable. No one's there's no Roberto Benini in this movie. That's what it could have used. <laughs> they should have really cut. The, they should have set Doug Jones loose. Let him be wacky out there. I want the fawn to really interact with everybody there instead of just staying in his cave, showing up in the middle of the night. I want the fawn to have conversations with Vidal, with uh, or the other guys in there, Garces, Serrano, like all the other soldiers. 
that's that's the kind of interesting uh, character interaction that that I want in there. I love the you know we get the early establishing of how evil Vidal is with that scene of him um, killing two innocent men that were out rabbit hunting because his troops found them. But then when Ophelia sneaks out just chasing this imaginary fairy, there's no one can find this kid just roaming the grounds, not even trying to be stealth. She's just like <laughs> she's one step away from just singing out loud. And no one can be bothered. We didn't even get a shot of like one of the guards sleeping or you know watching Charles in charge or something. They're all too busy harassing the villagers <laughs> to really care about the child. <laughs> yeah. um, that is, I think that's the first time that Del Toro kind of like tips his hand as to what he's really interested in, because that's that's the first majorly gory moment in the movie, and it just goes on. It, I mean, you mentioned uh, Peter Jackson earlier, and that was like. We're watching Dead Alive. It just keeps going. There's like close-ups of this guy getting his face bashed in. But it makes no sense because it sets the table for this movie of like, hey, you're going to see some crazy, brutal violence in this. Uh, And then... Just kidding. Giant frog. Yeah. And then it's like the parts that are violent are either like realistic stabbings or shootings where it's not like viscera and like Tarantino shit going everywhere or like the aftermath of something. But again, you don't see like this fucking nightmare on Elm street type plastic head being beaten flat with a beer bottle. That's the first like kill you see. So, you know, the gore fanatics could have been ramping up while, you know, the more sensitive stomach types could have turned off already. And he's not even setting the proper tone for his film. Ridiculous. Well, I think that every time that he starts, either of the two stories starts building up, then it loses momentum because he switches to the to the you know if he's if the story of Vidal and the rebels starts gaining momentum, he switches to the fairy tale, and then when that when the fairy tale starts getting interesting, he just switches to the the rebels and Vidal, and so it's always like a little bit of build up, and then it just dies again because he he can't stay with one or the other, and yeah, it's the same with the gore. I think there's there's one other moment like later in the movie, which is when when. Vidal has his, uh, he reenacts the Joker's origin story. When we find out how he got those scars. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> but no, I mean, you're right. It's just uh, misleading uh, on both ends. Because if you're into gore, you think there's going to be a lot gorier than, than it ends up being. And if you're not into gore, uh, this comes out of nowhere. <laughs> it really This is not a proper you. like representation of what the movie is going to be like. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely not. So the fairy tale picks up, like we mentioned. Ophelia follows this fairy that comes into her room. It's originally like a stick bug, but she shows it what a fairy looks like, and then it transforms into that and takes her to the stone labyrinth there on the property. And this is where we meet the fawn. He explains that he believes it's the princess come back to life. Uh, and then he's going to assign her three tasks that she has to complete before the full moon, right? It has to be done before then. Uh, yes. And if she does, she'll have her uh, immortality and uh, sent back to the underworld, away from where she is, because all she wants to do. I mean, poor girl, she's 10 and she already realizes that you want to be anywhere <laughs> except the real world. <laughs> but also, she's pretty quick to accept a deal that basically means she's leaving her mom behind. And I mean, I know that they don't see eye to eye when it comes to the books that she should be reading. But still, you would think that she would talk to the fawn and be like, all right, can we also, can my mom come along and my unborn brother? Because I'd rather not leave her with this guy that is uh, a maniac. Uh, but no, Ophelia doesn't, she, she kind of takes it very matter-of-factly. 
there's this really uh, alien-looking creature talking to her, and uh, she just kind of, you know, she nods. She takes it. In she stride. takes the book. Yeah, just like all right. I knew it. <laughs> there was a there was a world of magic around me all along. This is, by the way, this plays the 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 visual effect of the font plays very differently in a world uh, of uh, you know post Guardians of the Galaxy where we've seen Vin Diesel voicing Groot. It's like now you see that this guy and uh, I mean Doug Jones does does what he can, but it's no Groot, and it's basically like a, a you know a precursor to Groot that's not a school. So no, we get the Groot. Down. The Groot character is yet to come. Right, but that's that's what I mean. Like now that it's come, now that we've seen Groot, like this is nowhere near as impressive as I guess. No, it no, was no, no. I'm sorry. I meant like what I perceive to be the Groot character is like the Mandrake Root that she's given. Oh, that's baby Groot. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, no. I talking adult Groot. <laughs> sorry, get with the program, Alex. <laughs> Watch more MCU movies, Alex. So the first task involves. Her going into the forest, I was going to say the jungle, uh, going into the forest and finding this tree, she kind of crawls into it, and it's just your standard fantasy tale. You don't know if it's real or just a child's imagination, but she goes well, first, in. First, she makes sure she's wearing the nicest dress that her mom has That's right. Has yeah. made for her. Yeah, because the dress ends up getting ruined in this whole kerfuffle, but uh, yeah, total child behavior. You know, for the the main character here, and she's supposed to become the, this heir to a, some sort of throne. But total, you know, the mom's like, oh, it took me forever to do this. I'm so proud of this dress I got you. Here you go. Take care of it. And she just basically runs and belly flops into the mud. <laughs> it's uh, on one end. I was my my first thought was regarding the mom. I was like, "Do you even know your daughter? That's <laughs> this girl is absolutely not the kind of girl that is into dressing up. It's clear that that she should have gotten her a book. That's very much like what that what this girl's into. Okay, you don't want her to read anymore. Get her a sword. Get her a gun. Get her something that's gonna be useful because she clearly is more into the the." Uh, fantastical side of things. Uh, so, yeah, when she gave her the dress, I was like, she's just not going to wear the dress. But then she did something even worse. She wore the dress and then she went mudsliding. <laughs> so she crawls into this tree and she eventually comes across this big fucking honking frog. Some uh, aged CG on this. And, I mean, we're not talking Scorpion King bad. But, uh, you know, 2006, it was... Fucking 12 years ago, so technology wasn't up to snuff. But the problem is when you want to talk about your movie being like re- revered as some kind of classic, that means it has to age properly, too. Uh, and that comes down to visual effects, not just narrative. Well, it doesn't help that we just came off an arc in The Contrarians where we were just watching a, a very adorable frog <laughs> beat the star of... <laughs> a bunch of movies so after all this time spent with kermit when you see this frog that is it has zero charisma uh, and on top of that is not particularly eye-popping cgi it's just like eh. let's get to the next uh set piece please for real it was like a, a jackass movie where you're you don't want to watch the skit anymore so just come on go up go forward <laughs> two minutes and get to the next part yeah uh wh- how does she make the frog throw up I I don't understand what she did. Like there, it, she she got the frog to eat something that she had in her hand. Yeah, but, I don't know. I guess it was Ipecac or some shit. She <laughs> the the task were, said the 
these stones have to be in the frog's belly or the frog has to eat these stones or something. So she tricks it into eating it. And then like, yeah, it like throws up what I thought at first was it's insides, but I don't know if it was something to like fertilize the land or cause it kills the frog. <laughs> it like deflates right. it and cool, man. Also, she's like completely muddy and ruined now. And she comes out and it's raining and the dress is ruined and she goes back home and her mom's really disappointed in her. And it's like, for what? As a 10-year-old, you don't know what any of this means yet. <laughs> but, you know, she was smart enough to kill the frog, and she was not smart enough to change into sweats before going in her quest. Putting on her tracksuit like, or something. Yeah. Uh, so so while she was doing that, it's the most awkward dinner at the, you know, at the house with uh, Captain Vidal has invited some hoity-toity people. And, yeah. uh this could have been a comedy. This scene could have been funny, but they don't play it as a comedy, and instead it plays just awkward, uh, which you know just makes it feel like like Del Toro missed a trick there, because uh, these women they try to get Ophelia's mom to tell the story of how she met Captain Vidal, and you know they have to know that this is not a good idea, right? Like they all know yeah. Captain Vidal. He doesn't look like the kind of guy that would be happy just regaling you with the stories of how he seduced some other man's wife. But his, his wife apparently is oblivious to all of this. And she starts talking about how, like, well, you know, my husband used to be a tailor. The captain was one of his clients. And then my husband mysteriously died, disappeared, and now I'm married to the captain. Uh, and everybody's, like, sharing looks. Like, everybody knows exactly what, what happened. And then the captain has to be an asshole and, and tell her to shut up. Um the whole thing plays so awkwardly, but without the charm that comes with a like. Let's say if you're seeing this play out in a Ben Stiller movie, right? If Ben Stiller was playing Captain <laughs> Vidal, you're like, oh, uh-huh. this is hilarious because you just see Ben Stiller getting flustered and stammering over his words. This guy, uh, what's his name, Sergi? Sergi Lopez. Sergi Lopez. Yeah, I know he's trying. He was just too hard to be uh, a badass, and he did not recognize the the potential for comedy in certain moments here in the movie. Yeah, even when he's like stitching himself up towards the end, he could have just been like, "I'm falling apart here," or uh, <laughs> I, "It looks like I still have some healing to do," or something. <laughs> Limitless possibilities. Yeah, awkward dinner aside, the dress is ruined. Uh, her mom finds out and obviously reprimands and scolds her. Uh, do Do they take away her book of fairy tales at this point yet? I feel like they take it away throughout the entire movie. But it just keeps <laughs> coming back. Yeah. Every time she gets in trouble, they take away her books. And then somehow she has them again for, for the next scene. And she's visited by the fawn again, who provides her with a gold key for the next task. And at this point, it's becoming stressed of, you know, you have to obey the the rules and the guidance you're given here. And you can't deviate from that. And... I was half expecting the fawn to turn to the screen and be like, you have to wonder if she's going to listen to us or, (laughs) you know, it's a little kid for Christ's sake. So there's that part of it. And then on top of it, you know, calling out specifically what could go wrong. It's Murphy's law, man. And so before we get to the second task, I feel we just need to catch up elsewhere because this movie is running two, like two and a half storylines the one in the fantasy world and the one in the real world uh and in the real world the mom's like falling apart she's pregnant uh, the doctor said she shouldn't have traveled that distance while she was pregnant and she's obviously having a hard time we even get some shot of her bleeding very badly uh, internally her 
you know, from internally, externally, and she's having to be sedated and just taken care of, and they're not sure what's going to happen, and she's just in rough shape. Meanwhile, around the house, the doctor that's taking care of her, as well as Mercedes, one of the the maids around the house, they're playing a dangerous game, man, because they're helping out the rebels, as uh, mentioned in the the plot synopsis there, Pedro, uh, Mercedes' brother, is one of these rebels, and uh, they're giving them supplies. The doctor is giving them medicine. Uh, you know, they're helping them get the drop on some of these guys, these Nazis, or you know what have you. Um, but it's the thing of like they're not even being really smart about it. Like at one point, Mercedes <laughs> goes to like give them a signal of something, and she just goes to the edge of the lawn. <laughs> And is like flashing this light at them. Like the the guards are still visible where she's at. What did you feel like the rebels were literally like 10 steps away from where they live, from where Mercedes and the captain live? Yeah. yeah. It's just a short walk. They're just around the corner. Quick jaunt. Yeah. (laughs) There's a a time where uh, I think it's around that point in the movie where uh, Vidal and his troops are just. They see a fire, they see smoke, so they go to investigate. And it's just like a short ride there. And. uh, He's yelling at them. He's like, "You forgot this," because they left some medicine behind or something. And then they, as they, as Vidal and his troops start leaving, you see that the rebels were like two trees away, just watching them. Yeah, it's like Del Toro. He was shooting a small farm, and he couldn't go any further. It's like and it's not like musket is- days. Like these guys had far-reaching weapons at this point, and horses. They can just say <laughs> "ya" and go up twenty feet and see who's there. The the rebels. I mean, we never really get to see much of them, even though they're kind of this, this presence throughout the entire movie. But I felt that they, Del Toro, had just kind of grabbed supporting characters from a war movie. Because when you finally get to meet them, you have the 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 guy that that stammers. Then there's the other guy. They call him Frenchy mm-hmm. for no reason. You know, he doesn't speak French. <laughs> But they call him Frenchie. Uh, actually, I think Frenchie's the one that his leg is all messed up, so he ends up losing the leg. Oh, man. Uh, Shit's brutal. Yeah. There's Frenchie, uh, stutter guy. And then, of course, you know, you have Pedro, who's the hunk. Everybody else looks like somebody that's been a rebel for a while, but Pedro looks like he just came out of an Old Spice commercial or something. He's, <laughs> You know, all their stuff felt like it was uh, out of a cheaper war movie. That didn't quite match with the dark fairy tale that Sophelia's story, or the gritty, I don't know, fascist <laughs> documentary that's uh, the life of Captain Vidal and his wife. Uh, it's just like a mishmash of genres and, and visual styles that doesn't work together. Agreed. So back to the fantasy portion of it. Ophelia has been provided with this gold key. She has to go get this dagger, uh, but has been warned of the the pale man, the creature. I just have an all caps here. This this is easily what Pan's Labyrinth is known for. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think, Julio? Not necessarily just his scene, but the the Pale Man seems to be the most iconic thing about it. I'm sure most people think that the Pale Man is Pan, <laughs> and he's not, and he's not bread either. So you're wrong twice. Yeah, if you Google Pan's Labyrinth, this is the first thing that shows up is him with the the eye hands, and that's yeah. That all I remember seeing about this movie when it came out was just promotional shots and uh, you know clips of. The pale man who just looks like Mr. Burns naked. Uh, <laughs> he looks like a penis, <laughs> like an old penis. You kind yeah. of referenced it earlier. I mean, like the the sagging skin is just not is not very flattering. He's very you, phallic. Yeah, yeah. Like pale man is not the the name that comes to mind when I first see him. I just 
you know, because he's bald. <laughs> he doesn't have, you know, his facial features are kind of like drooping. It's just. He looks like what Ric Flair is going to look like in about two years. With all the, <laughs> the skin falling off. Um, so she goes and it's simple, but it's just like the fucking Goldilocks or I don't know. What's the what's a tale of childhood greed where you could have something easily, but you just break the rule. Uh Red Riding Hood. I mean, I don't know. All those all those children in fairy tales are generally pretty dumb. Which is the same thing here. This is just a fairy tale that teaches kids not to be greedy. Uh but but in startlingly violent fashion. Because she gets the, the dagger and then she eats two grapes despite these adorable little fairies in her face saying, Fucking don't. They're like <laughs> repeatedly telling her, No, 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 no. And she does, and that awakes the pale man and you know She's eating two grapes, and this dude is moving at the pace of <laughs> the Titanic the last two hours that it was afloat. And she just stands there, you know, and becomes oblivious, despite the fact that, again, all these fairies are like, behind you, behind you. And then two of these adorable little fairies get eaten by the pale man and die for no fucking reason. Just because of this child. Well, I know the reason. It's childlike <laughs> greed that caused yep. it. And then she, of course, runs away and escapes with the one fairy, but. All she had to do was just walk. I, I, one of my least favorite, uh, you know, stupid plot things in movies is that when, when your main character doesn't have a sense of urgency, even though they should. Uh, I think last time I brought this up was in our Robocop episode because Robocop just walks everywhere, even though he should be really, <laughs> you know, he shouldn't be taking his time because there's crime happening. Step. Yeah, yeah. Um, here, the the fawn tells Ophelia, "Hey, uh, time is of the essence." There's even uh, one of those sand clocks. You know, the the moment that she enters the the land of the pale man, like she knows that there's a timer, there's a literal timer, and she walks all the way there. Even before she starts eating the the grapes, she's just going way too slowly considering the mission and then yeah as soon as she gets the 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 key she doesn't run back to the door it says she just walks and then starts eating the grapes it's just for the sake of her getting caught it it, that's when the the filmmaker the writer just betrays the characters and just makes them dumber uh for the sake of the story for the sake of the plot moving it's just really annoying and then the other thing is that i don't understand the logic behind the pale man i understand the visual is cool right this creature that is blind but then can put eyeballs in his hands and and then he can see but then of course the eyes and his hands so that kind of limits what he can do with his hands um Okay, I, I I understand that it's a visual. That's fun, but how does evolution get there? Like, what you know what I mean? Like, what is the 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 process through which you end up with a creature that puts eyeballs in his hands in order to survive? Like, he should have evolution should have taken care of this a long time ago. He should be, you know, especially since he's kind of humanoid in his his design. So it just felt like Del Toro kind of like sketching out ideas, but not really thinking of a backstory that makes them possible or plausible even. Do you find this sequence um, not frightening, but just kind of suspenseful at all? Or you would think when you have something as interesting as the Pale Man and kind of spooky, and something that immediately makes your movie uh, a bit more eye popping, that it would be used for more. But no, it's this really slow chase, and then it's over. Well, you know what would have made things interesting is if the Pale Man had followed Ophelia out of that tunnel. 
and then he's just unleashed on Captain Vidal and the rest of his people there. And so suddenly, that's when Del Toro would have gotten me. Because I thought I was watching a fairy tale slash war movie, but then halfway through, it turns into a monster slasher movie where it's just the pale man wrecking havoc throughout the farm. The entire village just falls, and it's now it's a monster movie. And they'll be like, and then the Nazis and the rebels have to band together to fight off the pale man. Yes, like Guillermo del Toro, you son of a bitch, you got me. <laughs> I didn't see this one coming. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's not. It's all the visual. I understand, you know, especially in two thousand six. If you happen to be one of those people that saw it in theaters, that just made an impression. But really, the more you think about it, it's just it's just that it's just flash in the pan, and it doesn't really make much of an impact in the rest of the story. And even as you're watching it a second time, when you think about it, she has this magical piece of chalk that literally allows her to create a portal anywhere. All she has to do is draw a door on any wall and she walks out of there and uh, mm. they kind of make her really clumsy and so that she escapes like at the very last second. But, but we know that she has like a, you know, that, that powerful tool with her at all times. It's like, like in uh, the first Indiana Jones movie where, you know, there's the dude with the sword and, well, Indiana Jones has a gun, so it's really not much of a... There's not much suspense in uh, how that fight's going to turn out. So the same thing here. Like, yeah, he's he's coming towards her, but we know that she has to chalk. And, and yeah, at the end, she uses a chalk to escape, so it's not a big deal. Yeah, we mentioned the mandrake route that the fawn provides her and says, it has to stay in a bowl of water and under the bed, and you have to feed it like two drops of blood. Uh, and, but it's working because the fawn says it'll help her mom get better and she's immediately better. And um, this is where for all the tones we're trying to figure out if this movie is taking on the, the, the whole Mandrake route and the way it works and makes her better. It starts. I, I don't know if it starts to calling in like if we all just had more whimsy and wonder in our minds like children and we're more open to the idea of, you know, fairy tales working, maybe the world would be a better place and we'd be able to defeat medical science. Uh, but <laughs> homeopathy is the way of the future <laughs> that's right the del, del toro released a line of uh <laughs> vitamin supplements and homeopathic cures uh or um treatment methods i should say at the time of release for this as well del toro's mandrake the real bulk of that 19 million dollar budget was launched into the marketing for <laughs> del toro's home remedies all those uh prenatal vitamins Make sure that you end up like Ophelia's mom. Yeah, it was the pale man. They're like, I have a hard time seeing, but I can definitely see the results of using this medicine at home. <laughs> Captain Vidal, I thought I was going to lose my son. <laughs> Thank you, Guillermo del Toro. Now I have two sons. Thank you, Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> uh, next time that you're uh, sick or hungover, just try it. Put a bowl of milk under your bed and... Uh, well, mandrake might be a little hard to find, but get some ginger. Looks a little bit like ginger. <laughs> it does look like ginger. That and just cut my hand open and just bleed into it and see what happens. <laughs> well, I think it has to be the blood of an innocent. So can't nah, be I you. Don't, I don't know any of those. <laughs> uh, so Groot's there. The captain, um, she crawls under the bed to treat it because the captain's coming in and she's hiding. And she overhears him tell the doctor, you know, if it comes down to it, save the baby, not her. So, in case you were wondering if Vidal was the bad guy, 
<laughs> yeah. Ophelia knows, you know, the day, the days for her mother are numbered at this point, so she's trying to figure out what she's going to need to do to get away. Uh, we get this crazy battle scene after Mercedes helped out um, some of the rebels. They ransacked the supply at the uh, Vidal's camp, and they battle it out in the the woods surrounding the, the camp that they're at. And, yeah, the best part would be if it panned out and the campground is, like, you know, <laughs> 10 feet away. The the maids are just watching it from the back porch, watching it all go down. But this sequence features probably the dumbest uh, plot development in the movie, and the movie itself calls it out. It doesn't make it any less dumb, and that is that uh, all the supplies that the rebels want to steal, they're in this barn, and the barn is locked. There's a giant padlock, uh-huh. and supposedly only the captain has the key. But as it turns out, Mercedes has also a key. And she gives the key to the rebels. Then the rebels go in guns blazing, but they don't blow up the <laughs> the barn's door. They use the key. And so then later, when Vidal is like, you know, exploring, he, he notices. He's like, huh. So they bombarded my my settlement, but then they were nice enough to open the door instead of blowing it open. Somebody must have given them a key. So the rebels they did something really dumb, and then in a way, they kind of throw Mercedes under the bus by doing that. I understand that he needed the Mercedes to get caught eventually, but I wish that he had done it in a more clever way, because otherwise, it just looks like the rebels are stupid. Vidal's men seize the day on this battle. Uh, Mercedes gets wind of it back in the, the home and immediately becomes concerned that her brother Pedro was captured, because they said they got one of them. Uh, it turns out to be that poor, stuttering son of a bitch. And he is tortured for information at this point. They tie him up kind of in the, the what is it, storeroom or some shit? Their torture room. And not unlike Revolver Ocelot in Metal Gear Solid, Vidal contemplates what weapons he's going to use. <laughs> I was going to ask you if you thought that Guillermo del Toro is a, a big fan of uh, Pulp Fiction and Sam Jackson's big speech before he unloads on someone. It would seem like it based on the, the dialogue here, but... I think it's a hammer he grabs and just beats the shit out of him. I mean, you you need a special kind of swagger to deliver this type of uh, speech where you're trying to be calm, but you're also trying to be really threatening. You know, he's doing that thing where he's grabbing all the different tools of the trade while also saying, you know, at first I'm not going to believe you, then you're going to want me to believe you, and then by the end, well, you're not even going to want to lie to me. Or whatever he says, it's just yeah. It's like I get it, you know. He's trying to be, he's trying to be cool. He's trying to be Jules, but <laughs> he's not Jules. He's not Sam Jackson. It's already happened. It's 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 happened in other movies and it's been done better. Ophelia reports for duty for her next mission, and that's when the uh, remaining fairy just completely rats her out immediately. <laughs> it's like this bitch got these other two g- killed, and the fawn's like, why? Two fucking grapes. <laughs> and that's her defense. It's two grapes. I don't think anyone would notice. And she's just told straight up, you broke the rules. So no deal. Your chance at immortality is gone over two grapes. Hope they were delicious. Cue the Robert De Niro and Copland gif. You blew it. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like that that was your ticket out of there. And and really, two grapes. That was it. No do-overs. I quoted this on the last episode, but it's the that line Pete has on 30 Rock. You deserve to be disappointed. Merry Christmas. 
So the rebel they captured is obviously in really bad shape. The doctors called in uh, to treat him, and obviously he immediately recognizes them because this doctor's you know double timing. He's cheating on the Nazis. <laughs> so he comes to treat him. He asks him to kill him. He says, "I talked to him, but not much." At this point in time, when he cracks open his little medical tackle box, there, Vidal sees a vial of antibiotics, and it matches the vial he found at the campground for the rebels. Because no two pill bottles look the same, I guess, in 1944. <laughs> not in Spain, not in that remote village. Uh, it doesn't help that the doctor had monogrammed every single vial because he's very protective <laughs> of his stuff. <laughs> that would be the best, like the, the label maker, you know, property of da da da. So again, not much effort put into this. If like they, if they were monogrammed or had like a signature to them or some shit, but it's just like finding a bottle of aspirin. At, you, you know, you're your fucking girlfriend's plays be like, who is he? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I never take ibuprofen. I'm an Advil kind of guy. Um, I mean, I know this is, he was your, your, your guy, the doctor, but dude, do no harm. That's part of the Hippocratic oath. And, uh, I think this was before that was invented. I mean, he was an, <laughs> an, an OG Dr. Kevorkian here. The guy's like, kill me. And he's like, all right. So he puts God knows what in a syringe and shoots him up. He already knew what to do. He didn't even have to think twice. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's clear he's done that before. Like, Vidal steps out to take a piss or something. He comes back and <laughs> the guy's already, the prisoner is lost. But then, I know you like this moment because you said that, you know, he the doctor goes out like a champ. And I guess in a way he yeah. does. The, the doctor gets kind of like a, a decent exit, but it's at the expense of Vidal, who just spent an entire night torturing someone who might have known something. Uh, you know, he he could have gotten some information out of uh the the prisoner, and I, I guess according to what the prisoner said, he might have gotten some. Well, now here's this doctor who's basically exposed himself as being a sympathizer of the rebels, and Vidal just shoot him in the back. I would have thought that he would have just spent another day torturing this guy <laughs> just to see what else he can get. Meanwhile, after the mandrake root was found there by Vidal. He it starts accosting the girl. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? And the mother wakes up and says, stop. He's like, all right, you handle this. This is because all those fairy tale bullshit she reads. Take away her books and, for the 10th yes, time in this movie. Burn them. She's going she's gonna to be homeschooled. We're starting on Monday. Uh, <laughs> so the mom then takes the mandrake root and throws it in the fire. And uh, unbeknownst to her, f- sealing her own fate. But she tells the... She tells Ophelia, you know, there's no such thing as magic. It's just my note says, dumb adult. Magic's not real. Uh, and they, you know, try to break her spirit. But sadly, this is what leads to Ophelia's mom's ultimate demise. So as he's killing the doctor, she's going into labor and, you know, already things are wrong. So the guy who really knew how to take care of her is now dead. What are the odds? So, so Vital is just like... We have a backup doctor, which had never been established up until this point. Because the whole idea was like, you could tell pretty early on that he knew something was a foul with the doctor, but he had to keep him around because he was going to help deliver the baby. Oh, now it turns out we have a backup. This guy's bedside manner is not as strong, though, because as Ophelia's mother dies in childbirth, he comes out and he, with the same like conviction and uh, tone you would tell someone you clog their toilet. He tells them your wife's dead. <laughs> Do you think? Don't you think it would have been a lot more compelling to watch the doctor, the the OG doctor, the, the doctor that we knew in the movie, try to save 
uh, Ophelia's mom's life after he's been found out by Vidal. You know, like Vidal just... Oh, yeah. Like he knows he's going to die after this, but it's like his one last, I guess, debt to pay. Right. Vidal's about to kill him. And then they say, Captain, your wife, she just went to labor. She's bleeding all over the floor. And then Vidal is like, God damn it. I can't kill you yet. And you're a doctor. You better save her. And then he goes and he knows his fate is sealed, but still he does his best. And then she dies anyway. <laughs> and Vidal is like, first hand me my baby. <laughs> Next, turn around, look at the wall. Look at the flowers. Uh, yeah, that would have been... <laughs> yes. Pray to your gods. Pray to your fawns. Um, it would have been just so much better. Instead, we get some rando delivering the baby. Who cares? We don't know that guy. Also, you think the fawn would have told Ophelia, hey, by the way, don't fuck with the mandrake root because that could kill your mother. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much. Uh <laughs> So with the doctor out of the way, there's this tense scene uh, with the Capitan and Mercedes where we find out that, that he knows and he wants her to know that he knows that she was the other one that was a rat uh, and, you know, f- traps her with a lie about there just being one key to the, the storeroom with all the supplies and whatnot. And so she rightfully immediately panics and then goes and gets all her shit and says... I'm getting the fuck out of here. So she wants to go tell Ophelia bye. And Ophelia is like, God, take me with you, please. <laughs> and so we see them walk out of the, the, you know, the campsite, the house, what have you, the main house. They walk out. I think they literally go 15 steps and then they're <laughs> apprehended by Vidal and his crew. And it goes earlier. Like we said, they try to act like they're on a battleground, but I think it's just like a half acre. Like, I don't think much is going on here. The body of the dead doctor is still in the background. You can see it in the long shot. They, they have to step over it. It's like a puddle. <laughs> they, they have to step over. Oh, watch yourself. Um, I am not a military mastermind. Neither are you, Alex. But I think either of us would have let Mercedes get all the way to the rebel camp before we capture her. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, he knew that she was clearly going to go to the rebels. And it's like he couldn't help himself. He <laughs> he sprung the trap way too soon. He could have gotten, he could have surprised the rebels, but instead he, he didn't wait. He, he just, I mean, what did he win? Might as well just apprehended Mercedes before she even left the house. So he ties Mercedes up back in the, the storeroom, so now he's going to torture her. Uh, thankfully, um, my note says failed escape, failed torture. We had seen, if you were paying close enough attention a little bit earlier in the film, uh, Mercedes stores a knife in her apron. So while Vidal's egotistical self-absorbed ass has his back turned to her and is, you know, working through his speech that he's rehearsed seven times about what he's going to do. She takes this knife out. She has enough time to not only fetch the knife out of where she hid it, Cut through this rope, and we're talking like, you know, some serious heavy-duty <laughs> rope, like the type of shit nooses were made out of back in the John Proctor days, and then <laughs> sneak up behind him, stab him in the back, turns around, stabs him twice. He's still talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But this He's... is like the the badass woman hear me roar scene, though. She's like, I'm not some wounded beggar, or, you know, exhausted, starving, blindfolded soldier, whatever she says. She's like, you don't fucking touch a, the girl. And then uh, says, you wouldn't be the first pig I slaughtered. At least the translation is that. And then gives him the old Heath Ledger there. 
why doesn't she kill him? Yeah, I thought like she was gonna stab him in the throat or more like centralized in the heart or some shit. She just kind of, I guess, thinks I've made my point. <laughs> Surely he'll understand after this. Which he definitely doesn't. Uh, she escapes and then flees into the nearby woods, and she's chased. It's a a foot race between horses and a woman. <laughs> More importantly, it's a foot race between horses and a human, and it's like film, like it's competitive. <laughs> I mean, it's been a hectic couple of days at the you know at the Vidal compound, so those horses are probably a little tired. They've been running ragged because earlier in the week, I think that the rebels blew up a train. Well, they so. haven't had much to eat. Like all they have at the compound is fucking cheese and cigarettes. So <laughs> the horses are probably malnourished. <laughs> well, they have that rabbit that the farmers killed earlier. <laughs> yes, to split amongst a dozen horses. Here you go. Have at it. Uh, they surround Mercedes, and they're all gunned down promptly, though, as the rebels had regrouped and refocused their energies and i guess some cavalry had been called in uh, but we learned that pedro is still alive and we get the the tender embrace between mercedes and pedro <laughs> back in vidal's lair he's doing the joker sewing himself back up i guess this is where he's supposed to be we're supposed to at this point admire how much of a badass he is because he's <laughs> able to do this <laughs> yeah she, he has the half the Joker because she only did one side. Yeah. It wasn't even worth it to make him a, a full Joker. This, uh, you know, jokes aside about the CGI and the visuals, it's not aging well. This scene is fucking brutal. I could feel this. And then this dumbass, though, like, he's smart enough to be able to stitch himself <laughs> back up. And the first thing he does is take, like, a shot of whiskey or whatever, grain alcohol, whatever they have there. And then, he, you know, he takes it and then he starts to enjoy it. And then he's like, ah, like it burns him. Yeah, dude, you just put alcohol in half of your mouth is an open wound. What did you expect? What did you think was going to happen? It's like all the respect that he had gained in that that scene by (laughs) sewing his face together. Immediately done away with. Yep. All the street cred, done. Uh, So around this time, the fawn decides to show back up because he feels that we're heading towards the third act of the movie. And... uh, and the movie is called Pan's Labyrinth. So Bread Labyrinth. Bread Labyrinth. So it's time to to make it back to the labyrinth. Uh, pretty convenient, I think. It, it's almost as if he was waiting for uh, tragedy to strike Ophelia time and again. <laughs> so that she wouldn't be able to refuse his, his final offer. And I don't know. I don't know if it's that Del Toro just has no respect for his audience. Or it's just that he, he doesn't realize how weak some of this writing is because we get the reappearance of the magic chalk and that's an artifact that's way too powerful for this story you're giving this well, and girl- like even you can make the argument that when it was with the pale man she it was going into like a fairy tale land so you can make the argument of like uh you don't know where you're gonna end up <laughs> yeah the imagination side of it with this it's just like she's using it in a house that already exists it's like you know the game portal yep just she has like the gun that can just shoot at the wall and opens it right up yeah, so so she could just easily, you know, open a portal, grab her brother, her newborn brother, open another portal, and just show up at the rebel's house or wherever, anywhere that's not there. So, of course, what does she do, Alex? She leaves the chalk behind. <laughs> she leaves it, like, on the counter, and, and this guy is clearly, like, an anal retentive OCD type guy. So anything that's not 
normal or anything that's out of place, he's immediately going to notice. And the first thing he notices is the chalk. Yeah. And he like crumbles it, but then you know something else catches his attention. So she just completely lucked out here uh, because the fawn said, you know, all will be forgiven if you bring us your brother, the the newborn. And so she goes to Vidal's lair to capture it. In the meantime, it's like a sedative that was used on her mom. Uh, she mixes it into his whiskey, like a lot. Like uh, that's like two shots of NyQuil. And, <laughs> and Vidal's still drinking whiskey, even though it burns. He's realized oh, yeah. he likes it. Well, a true alcoholic. That's the <laughs> his life is crumbling around him and he's probably gonna lose his job. All he's got left is the drink, baby. Also, he has that one side of his mouth that's not fucked up, so he just swishes it on that side. <laughs> you gotta enjoy it. Uh so he's distracted. Meanwhile, Ophelia snatches the baby, goes to head out. Vidal returns, uh, takes that shot, and as they're trying to sneak out, an explosion like illuminates the backdrop, and he sees uh, Ophelia and the baby and just basically says, drop it. She just <laughs> nods her head, no, I'm not giving it back to you. I'm and, not dropping my brother. <laughs> and it starts to kick in as he's basically drugged and weary as shit, trying to chase a fucking 10-year-old with a gun. So they retreat uh, into the labyrinth, and it's like I said – until the mythical side of it opens up, it's basically just a, a stone maze. So also, uh, if you've seen The Shining, this sequence is just the ending of The dude, Shining. Yeah, <laughs> took the words right out of my mouth. Just Del Toro openly acknowledging his uh, filmmaking heroes, Quentin Tarantino and Stanley Kubrick. What I was going to say, because Vidal is staggering around like Jack Nicholson at the end of that movie. Just, Ophelia! <laughs> Ophelia, boy! Here's the captain. <laughs> Ophelia eventually winds up with the fawn. The the stones open, and he asks, you know, the the portal's going to open. It needs the blood of an innocent. Uh, so give me your brother. He, he motions like it's it's just going to be like a poke on the wrist, you know, and uh, it's like a shot. He's basically trying to convince her of, and yeah, she's mean, just not having it. She's, he never says how much blood, and I think no. Ophelia could have asked, like, okay, how much blood are we talking about? I would have been like, look, level with me. If I hand this baby to you, are you just going to throw it down that well? <laughs> but she refuses, and so the fawn says, you know, sorry, tough titties. You missed your window. I'm getting out of here. Right as um, Vidal's showing up. And we, we do get the one shot of he cannot see the fawn. This is all in her mind. So he takes the baby, and then he fucking shoots this 10-year-old girl. <laughs> well, remember, Alex, he's the bad guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no question about it, as Gordon Sully would say. So she falls down, begins to bleed out as he leaves the stone maze. This was like the one fuck yeah moment of the movie. It's like, finally, this dude's going to get what's coming to him as uh, Mercedes and Pedro and the rest of the republics are there, just completely outnumbered him. They've defeated his army. He hands over the baby and says, you know, take care of it. Tell him his father and Mercedes says, no, he'll never even know your name. And before he can say anything, he gets shot right through the cheek. It's a close range, though. I would have thought a lot more damage. Oh, dude, it's oh, it's so gross, though. Like he gets <laughs> shot, and then like his the eye on the side that got shot rolls back and starts bleeding. It's fucking brutal. But at first, it just looks like he popped a zit because <laughs> he, he reaches little... for it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the two things that struck me in this scene is that one, the rebels have multiplied. 
Earlier in the movie, Vidal says, oh, you know, it looks like there's about a dozen of them. One of them is injured. He's about to lose his leg. The other well, one... somehow Palpatine returned, so <laughs> yes. the the forces grew. It rained, and, you know, they're like gremlins. They, they, they just yeah. <laughs> multiplied. Uh, then the other thing is they've sold us Captain Vidal as this badass through the entire movie. Man, seconds before he, he's confronted by the rebels, he shoots a 10-year-old. And are you telling me that he's just easily going to surrender the one bargaining chip he has? He has a baby with him, and he has a gun. You know, all he has to do is point his gun at the baby, and those rebels are going to part like the Red Sea. But instead, he's like, you got me. <laughs> Here you go. Son of a bitch. <laughs> well, can't say I didn't try. My note says about Vidal, just in all caps, owned. Uh <laughs> Mercedes immediately runs and tries to comfort uh, Ophelia, but it's too little too late. She begins humming the nursery rhyme. She, she couldn't remember the the words, but just remembered the melody to it and begins humming it. And we see that Ophelia is dying, uh, but we see what that means as she's bleeding into this portal, and it's the blood of an innocent. And she goes to the underworld with her father and mother again as the princess. And the fawn reappears and is like, hey, you passed the final test. <laughs> It was for you to be selfless in this situation. So welcome to immortality. Let me know if you need anything. <laughs> so so the queen looks mysteriously like her mom, which, it, I mean, I don't know. This is not the end of The Dark Knight Rises, you know, as far as the ambiguity. It's not even the ending of The Guard, where you're like, <laughs> did, did she live? Did she die? <laughs> I, I think it's pretty clear that we're watching the... The last few seconds of a fever dream as this little girl dies, which made it even the more disappointing that the guy that plays the king is just some random dude. Because I would have liked to see some creative casting here, right? Isn't, isn't that like how you would, what you would see in, in, in a good Hollywood production? Like that final bit, it's like, uh, man, who is this? Is this Sean Connery at the end of Prince of Thieves? I think so. Yeah, it shows up as, as the king just for that one scene. And it's, it's Patrick Stewart in the Mel Brooks version. And, you know, you, you get you always get somebody big to play the king. And, it, man, tell me, it would have been amazing. They they show the king, like the camera pans to the king, and it's Danny Trejo with the white <laughs> wig, the robes, speaking Spanish, because it's Danny Trejo. <laughs> amazing. Welcome, my child. <laughs> Or no, it's Guillermo del Toro is the the king. Oh, there you go. Or maybe yeah. Alfonso Cuaron, if you want to just, you know, kind of spread the wealth. But yeah, no, it's just some random old dude. So it's just, eh, who cares? And then the <laughs> and then the fawn, because I guess the fawn that's narrating the, the story, uh, goes on to try to make it all sound good and say that, no, no, trust me, she lived for hundreds of years. I swear. <laughs> we didn't let her die up there. I oversaw all of it. I was there the whole time. <laughs> Yes. So all's well that ends well for everyone that's not fucking Vidal. Or, you know, depending on how you read the ending, Ophelia. Man, if she's going to be living now, you see that outfit she's got? How much better, how much of an upgrade where she's at? Even if it's the afterlife. <laughs> I think she, things are going to be better for her there. Okay. But it's that's, always fucking raining where but she that's, was. But that's if you believe that that's the afterlife as opposed to just her brain short-circuiting as she dies oh well i mean yeah that's always a possibility <laughs> it's the the end of source code you never know 
<laughs> we shall discuss what this ending means. It's been the subject of many a debate throughout the years. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that was Contrarian's Corner. We did the Contrarian's Corner thing to Pan's Labyrinth. We gave Pan Labyrinth the Contrarian's treatment. So what that means is that if you want to know how we really feel, all you do is just move over to part two of this bonus episode, uh, Real Talk, and we will see you there if you're ready, Alex. Of course. We'll catch you all on Real Talk. That summer of May.